Welcome to the Programmatic Digest podcast, your weekly roundups on top programmatic and digital news with expert interviews. I am your host, Ellen Parker, your very own programmatic sensei. You can find everything we've discussed today, including our expert information, show notes, and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. In the first segment, we are doing things a little bit different, where this week's digital expert, Matthew Silverman, is going to discuss a few articles on what you may have missed in the last few days, instead of just discussing a couple topics. So Matthew Silverman is the chief optimizer at Silver Optimize. He is your to-go man when it comes to search engine op- optimization, search engine marketing, and social media marketing for e-commerce businesses. He has an extensive background in B2B demand generation, marketing automation, business intelligence, email, newsletter, marketing tools, and more. I had the pleasure of partnering on a couple client strategy with Matthew, and he is one sharp, concise, and effective ninja. You can find Matthew on LinkedIn and on his website, silveroptimize.com, and I'll also include all of his information in the show notes. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. It is such a pleasure. You and I had had a a couple strategies where we got to discuss a little bit on some of your clients. I was honored that you got to call me. I'm having a lot of fun working with you and partnering and can't wait to partner on this next one. Absolutely. So our first story is from Lori Sullivan in the Media Post article. LinkedIn introduces a new pricing model to align with new marketing objectives. So basically, they're introducing a brand awareness, website conversion, and job applicants that are new objectives added to the campaign manager. And for those of us who are not familiar with the LinkedIn platform, campaign manager is a tool that lets us programmatic ninjas and marketers create ad campaigns on the platform, giving marketers a funnel experience per Sadiq Sheeran, the director and head of global product marketing at LinkedIn. Let's just elaborate here a little bit before I ask you for your point of view on this. If the marketing objective is a website visit, we'll only pay per click through the website. If it's social engagement, it looks like we would only be charged for comments, shares and other interactions. What do you think of this LinkedIn update? I think this LinkedIn update's good. I, I, from what I've seen across the board with all the engines, all the engines are doing um, two things. They're all adding new features and tweaking the existing ones. And the second thing is they're all going in and trying to tweak their pricing models, pricing it based on features and pricing it based on other factors. Um, a couple months ago, uh, some of the display publishers were doing something similar where they're getting rid of the Google model, which was um, mm-hmm. the winner of an auction will pay a penny over the next highest bidder. And um, now LinkedIn is trying to jump on the bandwagon, trying to figure out how do we make more money? How do we figure out different pricing models for different people? And that's kind of what I take into this. I've got uh, a couple clients now doing LinkedIn advertising. This doesn't affect them too much because they're more like broad-based. But I think for some other clients, like maybe recruiters or, you know, maybe some of the potential prospects that we're looking to get in front of, this would be something that mm-hmm. uh, potentially would affect us. Uh, the big question is like, in terms of effect, what's the before and what's the after? That's debatable. You know, someone would have to be running a campaign before and then see the effect after to actually really know precisely what's going on. 
And I think you mentioned earlier in your conversation, you mentioned, I think, the first price auction model that uh, Google is going through this year. Correct. So you're saying that now LinkedIn is just paying attention of the industry and just moving and adapting to what marketers are going to get used to it. Exactly. Right. I don't think necessarily think they're going for the first pricing model or change it to something drastic like that. Okay. But definitely based on what I'm reading between the lines here, they're playing with features and they're playing with pricing models and they're trying to mm-hmm. figure like, where's that secret sauce to figure out which features people want and mm-hmm. what's the pricing model that's going to generate the most revenue for us. So do you think it will affect how campaigns are being executed or even like how we're doing media planning and strategizing now? I don't think so. A lot of these changes that the engines make, they do with a lot of consideration and concern and research uh, in the industry to see like what people are using, how they're using it, just to make sure that they don't disrupt what's currently going on. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of testing. So whatever is happening here in the public, they've probably done months and months of um, small group testing and testing with small subsets of clients to see like how this change actually affects uh, a larger group of clients. So by and large, most of these things that come out in the press in terms of changes really are like uh, incremental changes. They're not going to affect people too much. There are the occasional changes that do, but this one with LinkedIn, I doubt it. Yeah, I mean, I, I do I do appreciate them be- becoming a little bit more specific. And I do think that is, it is going to give us a different experience, especially when our industry is so used to recognizing you know, the click-through rate as a, a success metric or as the only success metric and being able to now identify, actually, this is a social engagement. Therefore, a CTR doesn't really matter as long as there's engagement, which are specific now, defined as comments and shares. So I definitely want to see more of those integration on other platforms And I know, and I'm not going to compare with Facebook because it's a very different platform, but in terms of implementing LinkedIn in your media strategy, that is definitely going to be a a small game changer here, especially when you're targeting like B2B uh, audiences when, as mentioned, when you want to, when you're running a recruiting campaign and instead of, again, going with that, that basic metrics, you're actually pulling in and optimizing from something that's more First, applicable and tangible. That's really cool. So I'm looking forward to maybe seeing uh, and hearing more about it too. Right. No, it's a great article. So our second story is also from Lori Sullivan, uh, but as a commentary in Search Insider, which is a media post publication. Are consumers shifting their behavior towards using their voice to find answers? The Voice Assistant SEO report for brands released in July by VoiceBot found that voice search is rising and third-party sites such as Wikipedia and Yelp are defining the information consumers are hearing about brands. E-marketers estimate that by 2021, the number of smart speaker shoppers will reach 38 millions. Now, not all will shop online via a smart speaker. Most consumers are simply just looking for information. Do you have a smart speaker like an Alexa or a Google Assistant? I do have a Google um, Alexa and I do use a Google Assistant, like for example, when I'm in the car. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't use it for shopping. I want to see, I want to touch and feel on or read more about it before I say, all right, bye. 
<laughs> okay, so you're one of those people. So because I am an online shopper, so I'll probably be those pr people just testing shopping via, you know, my Alexa. At uh, this time, though, I'm using it for research or I use Alexa so that she can take notes on what's missing to add on my shopping list. <laughs> and then I also use Alexa for other type of reminders, such as remind me 10 minutes that Zeus the dog is still outside so he doesn't, you know, fry out there. I mentioned these details because it's super interesting how <laughs> some of this, this is already coming up. Hmm. Huh we will be able and this is me forecasting <laughs> professionally forecasting that there's going to be a time in the near future where I will be able to buy programmatically if a person is contextually interested in some or if that person is shopping for this as an SEO wizard what do you think what do you what do you think about this <laughs> I think there's a couple things there it's, it's kind of like a very interesting mix of mm -hmm. items going on with this article. You've got an SEO component, you've got the programmatic component, and then you've got the big data historical behind the scenes, which could trigger a lot of other things. And SEO, I think it's very important there for certain industries to be on top of voice right mm -hmm. now. For example, the things that are immediate need, like I need a plumber, I need a blah, 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 whatever it is, I need yeah. it right now. People are starting to go into the phones. Hey, Google, give me a plumber. Hey, Google, I'm hungry. Where's pizza? You know, the, the immediate <laughs> gratification needs right now. Yeah. So yes, that's important. Programmatically on that side, I would say if there's a way to use Target's playbook from a couple of years ago, where they did a couple of big data studies and they figure it out if someone's buying, I don't remember the combination of goods in one single shopping trip. It's like, beer and something oh. else and diapers and whatever target determined that household has uh either a newborn or somebody's pregnant in the house if you're able to do that on a voice search where you can say all right based on the history of what someone is searching for using voice we could determine that they are blah whatever that is mm -hmm. put them in a bucket categorize them and then from that category you can go out there and say these are the things that we think would resonate with this type of person Let's introduce them to this type of new company, advertising, messaging, whatever it is. And that's where the programmatic comes into play. I don't think programmatic by itself is going to be so useful for voice. I think you need to have some type of historical trigger to make it really valuable. Okay, so I got way too excited. Thank you for bringing me back <laughs> back to reality here. So, all right. So we're, we might not be placing a, a pro, an ad programmatically via voice. However, I totally agree with what you just said. I think it aligns with where the industry is moving in terms of, again, how are we tracking that data? How are we utilizing this data in a very smart way? Being able to, to pull some of those data segments and utilize it on another platform or on another technology or just not even for advertising purposes, for understanding the behaviors of, you, you just mentioned it, like historical data, but also for creative purposes, for research, for anything, I think it's going to be really cool, but can only imagine how this will affect any privacy law that we're trying to implement in this country. Right, exactly. And like your example, if you're, you have a dog, it could be where you click off the box, okay, fine, you know, allow enhanced uh, capabilities of my Alexa device. And from there, you'll, there's three or four local vets, one of them decides, you know, what, we're going to optimize for search. 
they were able to get in front of you every time you start talking about dogs. Oh yeah, this vet has a special on grooming, whatever it is, and they can do programmatic voice ads. You know, that would be a great example. Uh, it might be that there's segmentation with the devices where if you say, no, I don't want to opt into the enhanced capabilities, your device becomes a quote-unquote dumb device, which can mm-hmm. basically play music and that's really it because they've turned yeah. off all the other features. You know, it's really a, a dumb speaker. But if you turn <laughs> that on, then you can get all the crazy things like, oh, yeah, remind me to bring the dog in in 20 minutes. Alexa thinks, yeah. oh, yeah, the temperature outside is too hot. You know what? Let me adjust it to five minutes. You need to bring your dog in now. He's going to overheat. Yes, exactly. And, and then you can have Chewy saying, you know what? We see you have a dog. Would you like some dog popsicles or something else to help your dog refresh after coming inside? <sighs> I really hope that this is how this whole thing is going to move towards because ultimately, like, it's up to us to to protect the integrity of the brand and make sure that we're targeting as relevantly as possible because there's a reason why Adblock even exists is because somebody got pissed out there for seeing the wrong ad being served an ad that is so not relevant to them or their needs and here we are now with trying to adapt with those new tools so the more relevant we are in the way we target the better it is and then also as a consumer i absolutely absolutely have no patience for poor remarketing out there if an ad is following me and i am not in market i instantly click like why am i seeing this ad not relevant to me i remember even like emailing one of the tools we were already using at that time but i still i I was still getting served the ad and so I, i email them and say, hey, I'm, I'm actually a customer of y'all's. Just go ahead and, and exclude our IP address at this point because you're just wasting impression on me. Like, like stop. It was, it was, and it was very, very aggressive. I'm, I'm talking about this person. Well, I mean, this company just had frequency like out, out of this world. Wow. I had ads everywhere. So, <laughs> so I, I like how you mentioned being very, very targeted and relevant in how we're targeting. So that's really important. Do you think there's going to be an ad blocker for the voice assistants like there is for display ads and other ads? Oh, gosh. Um, if it is, it's probably going to be under a subscription. I don't know how like somebody like the Alexa or like a Google assistant would just have that in place. Um I, I'm I'm very curious. I don't I'm not sure actually. If it is, the only way it makes sense right now is to have somebody actually pay a higher monthly subscription to avoid the ads. Wow. That's yeah. an interesting thought. That's another revenue stream for the uh, voice companies. Actually, the next two stories are going to be spend forecast focused. And so the first one is on local media spend. Although local media will continue to see rising digital ad revenue, traditional media at least from what we thought, will retain a majority share. The BIA Advisory Services says traditional media will have 60% share of the overall local media spend in 2019. Digital ad revenue will have 40% share. And this is according to Wayne Friedman in his Media Daily News article, another Media Post publication. For our programmatic ninjas out there that are not too clear about what exactly local media is, is so local comprised of like the newspaper radio station television but the digital media side here is specific to like direct solicitation coupons online coupons and online catalogs and any direct and that is at 35 percent in 2018 and sorry it was at 65 percent in 2018 are those numbers surprising to you (laughs) 
I don't think the numbers are surprising to me in terms of that they're holding steady. I know that yeah. years ago, there was predictions that, you know, the sky's going to be falling in certain industries. And I've seen... By 2020. Right. I've seen in ad age, like, you know, um, certain advertising segments, like, dropping drastically. But I think that for smart marketers, these are golden opportunities to actually go out and mm-hmm. market to different segments because the prices are lower or should be lower than what they used to be. There's definitely uh, less competition out there compared to digital. Like if you're sending direct mail um, right now, the number of direct mail pieces I get are so far and few between that I actually pay attention to them. I have to touch it before I have to throw it out. Um, I can't say <laughs> the same thing years ago when I used to get, you know, a dozen, two dozen direct mail pieces and eventually it all hit the trash can pretty quickly. So the, the effect is different. I definitely get, oh, now that you mentioned that, I think I also get less direct mail. However, some of those direct mail is still from the same, you know, the same company. I'm, I'm already paying for my internet or my my energy power. Right. And so I really wish they would have something specific. And, and then you know what? They, they really profile because my maiden name is Fernandez. And so half of those direct mail comes to me in Spanish. And so that's that's really poor marketing, just assuming based on name. I'm not even sure if there's like a Hispanic community, just like in my in my neighborhood right now. Like it's it's very diverse, but I have not seen a lot of like Latins living in my neighborhood. Both traditional and digital merging together are work really well for SMBs, especially if the budget allows. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, you're basically doing advertising theory, which says that you need to have multiple different impressions with a high enough frequency rate across different media to convince somebody to do something. Exactly. And our next up is Lucy Koch article on eMarketers.com. And it's outlining how retailers are increasing spending via digital channels, focusing on mobile and search. And so this is very focused to retailers, which is known to grow by 19% this year. And we can also expect those retailers to spend $28 billion on digital ads in 2019. So this dual device approach is paying off as more digital sales are made on mobile devices. Mobile purchases will grow by 28% this year. Uh, Retail sales made via desktop and laptop will grow by 4%. Now search is growing by 22%. These channels are something we work in very often. Is that a, a trend that you're seeing with your client, the fact that they're looking more, asking more questions about, hey, can we spend more in mobile or what can we do in mobile and search? I haven't had that too much in terms of spending only on mobile. I'm actually trying to convince my clients to spend across the board because I've got one client right now where they do spend and they're trying to spend more on mobile. And I'm trying to mm-hmm. say to them, well, it's not always mobile. People are on the desktops. People do use the mobile heavily. But when they are doing research and things like that, they are on a regular computer or a tablet or something else. Mm-hmm. Their mobile device is not their only computer-based platform that people are using. The other takeaway I'm reading into this article, which is interesting, is comparing brick-and-mortar versus e-commerce. Brick-and-mortar oh, yeah. growth, 2019, um, contribution was 55%, where e-commerce is 45%. I think fifth reading between the numbers here, it sounds like brick and mortar is trying to use digital advertising to ounce maneuver e-commerce pure play providers for the same sales. I and, 
Absolutely agree with you. Yeah, and that's going on heavily. Like, for example, here in Atlanta, it's Home Depot's headquarters in their backyard. And they mm-hmm. just hired, I think it was about a year and a half, two years ago, about a thousand digital marketing professionals because they're going head to head, not against Lowe's. They're going to get um, with Amazon. Wow. Um, okay. Because they're seeing that people are buying more on Amazon and they're trying to outgame Amazon with better and more sophisticated marketing. Wow. Yeah. So this definitely makes sense where their growth there is is huge and they're spending oodles of money to keep customers because they can see that if they keep a customer, the lifetime value of a customer coming into store or buying from a Home Depot is so much higher than if they go to Amazon. That's a great point because, I mean, we see it also um, with the, you know, the, the, the giant Amazon where... Walmart and Target online are actually competing very close to some of Amazon's number in terms of like, I think, two-day shipping. They're really trying to step outside of their norms to or outside of their traditional product and services to make sure that they are competing with that giant. And it's only normal that brick and mortars are catching up to it. I definitely am a big fan of brick and mortars. I support usually they're a smaller business, as local business. I absolutely support that. I do think that some of them should implement an e-commerce strategy, but that's in a perfect world. Like in the real world, it's it's a lot of investment for, on many levels, a lot of investment for a small mom and pop shop. Right, exactly. Okay, so moving on to some email marketing tools news <laughs> with an article from Kyle Hendrick in themarketingland.com. So one year later, how AMP, which is Accelerated Mobile Pages for Gmail, is helping marketers improve engagement. So just to recap, AMP, again, it's Accelerated Mobile Pages functionality. It was built to allow brands to be more creative with their email marketing strategies, offering increased opportunities for more engaging, interactive, and streamlined experiences for Gmail users. So although the article is pointing out how much work goes into implementing the tool, um, and that's on the dev side manually, it still brings cool features back, such as carousel feature to highlight products within um, the email, incorporating live real-time feeds, and then an interactive forums for signups, application, and more. Uh, Matthew, have you used AMP before? I I haven't. I wish I had the ability to use it. All the companies that I've worked for or work with, it's always been a discussion of uh, with the CEO or mm-hmm. you know some higher up executive saying, "Here's what we need to do." It's either AMP or PWA or some other speedy web technology, <laughs> and it's always been marked down as, "Oh, it's either too complicated to implement, or mm-hmm. we don't have the budget this time around, or." no, we're not interested, or we just don't see the value, we just don't understand it. I've seen a number of these articles about doing something with AMP with Gmail, and I think it's brilliant for the companies that can actually do it, because there's a large group of people that use Gmail that could benefit from this, and that would definitely set marketers apart, be able to do so much more with consumers just by giving them enhanced functionality in their uh, Gmail applications. Do you, Have you used something similar for your client right now in terms of email marketing is there any direct you think is there any direct competitors of of this gmail 
I don't think so. I mean, I've seen like little widgets here and there, but nothing to the scale of Gmail plus AMP. Because you know that if Google's going to come out with it, <laughs> it's going to work really well. And the back end, they're going to optimize so it works for the consumer. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> That's a great point. Our next story is story number six. Google extends Chrome ad blocking to global market. Publishers must conform to better ad standards and see ads on their site blocked by Chrome. Chrome has 64% of the global browser market, just so we know. <laughs> the industry group was created in response to the rise of consumer ad blocking. So we just covered last week how Firefox is also testing an ad block tool or rather a tool blocking browsers cookies tracking. What is your point of view on that? Does it does it kind of aligns with the rest of the industry or how other giants are adopting some form of tracking measurement or tracking measurement to protect consumers either data or or consumers experience? I think this is very much a reactionary approach okay. and this is none of this is proactive or not really um, I don't say intelligent, but it's not like very sophisticated. I mean, I've been using ad blockers for years in one way or another. Um, and I remember using an ad blocker in the early 2000s when banner ads were in their heyday and their banner ads everywhere and eventually got tired of it on dial-up. And it's like, all right, I just got a deep 60s and I found a, a plug-in and it got rid of a lot of them. Um, but now they're trying to make it more sophisticated. I think somewhere along the lines, we'll find another article about how this ad blocker basically blocks all competitor ads, but lets in certain double click ads or other things. Mm -hmm. And that happens with ad blockers um, where once you have one company based ad blocker, they're going to be more less heavy handed with their own ads. And they're going to be more absolute justice for all competing ads. Hmm. That's a very interesting way to put it. Um, yeah. So like, for example, at home, I use, I've got a Pi, a Raspberry Pi, and I've got Pi Hole. Mm -hmm. And it does a pretty good job of blocking a lot of ads. Like, there are very few banner ads that get through. Native ads get through. Some other ads get through. App ads, because it doesn't go through regular HTTP. There's some other HTTPS transport that goes through that. It's skipping through Pi Hole, and Pi Hole doesn't see those. But, um, you know, people are going to block ads. Not everyone does it. I think the number of people who block ads is higher than the industry really wants to admit. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do about it? Um, I think taking a step back, it's not a case of blocking ads. It's digital marketers and actually even pushing out to the publishers. They need to get smart and realize, okay, you can't go crazy and pushing certain ads in front of customers because they're not relevant. And eventually customers will stop using something because it's just too much advertising mm -hmm. or they'll just start blocking it. And then, the ad revenue goes down because your impressions are going down. Your uh, media kits don't seem to make sense and you can't get your ad revenue. I do have an ad blocker as well. I use Ghostery. Okay. But the the reason why I have Ghostery is because it also will let me know which other tags are on the website and it's literally just let, allow me to pause and unpause. And one of the reasons why I um, downloaded or am using Ghostery is because as a marketer, I'm literally across so many websites and I get retargeted for all of them and I am not in the, in the market for any of them. I'm just being the marketer that I am, doing research, going on a competitor's website. And so having that ad blocker sometime at home just protects my sanity. It's very interesting. Again, just to refer back to the article, I'm pretty sure 
Chrome already had some type of ad blocker implemented. It's just, I think now they're rolling out internationally, which and also mentioned as Firefox is, is going considering some level of that. Wasn't it like Safari that did it about a year ago or a year and a half ago that it, it doesn't allow us to just track by via browsers, the browser's data? So um, Yeah, there, there was actually something that was a number of years ago because I was working for Condition One. They were mm-hmm. a, a top-tier search technology company. Funny enough, actually one of my direct clients was Apple Computer, and I was helping manage technology, our technology for their search marketers. And we actually approached them directly saying, okay, we know that Safari is coming out blocking third-party cookies. Will that have an effect on our technology? And we started working on a Skunkworks project, which would have been a first-party cookie pass-through at that time using some type of profile with no cookie set. Mm. So effectively, you could have had an ad blocker on your browser. It wouldn't have done anything because we would have fingerprinted your computer, known who you are, and then be able to track you across the web based on your fingerprints. Right. And also, that's a good point because, I mean, we, I, as a, a programmatic ninja, I don't always implement like browsers data targeting. Like I'm less likely to implement, like I only want to target people that are using Chrome or people that have used Safari in the last 30 days, unless it's a specific product. And quite frankly, I haven't had a campaign with that goal. Looking on a practical and everyday side losing that that targeting data isn't i don't think is going to professionally affect us that much as you're mentioning because i'm still being able to target via third-party data or on the publisher side i'm able to just target contextually utilizing first-party data look likes and all that jazz and sometimes it's outside of the browser's realm so right but there will be a day where i assume somewhere mm-hmm the technology is going to catch up and they're going to say, all right, you know, let's completely block all cookies and tracking other stuff, which would (laughs) render the stuff you're doing to be blind and deaf. You won't be able to see or hear what's going on. You'll have to come up with some other technology to track people. Right. And I'm pretty sure that's why we're ta- we were talking about voice at the beginning of the, the episode. Right. <laughs> I think eventually we're going to have to tie it back all together, but that's definitely in the near future or in the next few years. Um, so our last story is uh, also an article for Ad Exchanger, and it's just it's on the sell sider and it's talking about the unified pricing changes for publishers or for Google. Is it good for publishers or good for Google? First, can you help us answer this question? Like, are unified pricing changes good for publishers or good for, like, just Google? Um, So to answer all your questions, um, the first one would be, is it good for publishers, good for Google? I think it's a mixed bag because I haven't seen the actual data. I heard from one of the other articles when I heard about this first coming out that it was mm-hmm. good for Google. It's definitely going to increase Google's bottom line. Um, in terms of have I used it, seen it, I haven't really run display as a DSP or um, DoubleClick360 or any of these other things directly. I've always had a client do it, so I've always been on the receiving end of data or interface with the display people to get something done. So I understand the technology, what they're doing, and there's so many different models out there. I think what it sounds like is there's some cleaning up and of the different pricing models that's going on mm-hmm. and testing of different other pricing models. And I think that's got just going to constantly be happening where Google and the other display partners are going to try to figure out, okay, what works better? Let's test it out. Let's try something new. And every couple of years, that's going to happen. Um, uh, it's just, you know, depends on uh, the industry and what's going on. 
Right. I mean, the article mentioned how first it was we had a few we had a few tentative solution. You know, unified pricing model is is not is not a new thing. The traders launched their version, I think, at the air earlier this year of 2019, a couple years ago, header beating came across. And on the supply side, it was, I think, a yield optimizer. And all of those tools or those new things are just a way for marketers or advertisers to control the way the inventory is being priced. Google is now implementing some level of unified price model. And I think what they're really trying to do is being able to communicate between their their networks, right? Like the supply side communicating with the demand side, as you're mentioning. I right. and clean I, up the pricing strategies yeah. that are out there because there's just so many of them that you listed. It's just how can you keep track of it all? And I think Google's like, all right, fine, let's just make one and be done with it. And, and the reality of things is that no matter what Google implements. <laughs> We almost have, we, I don't know how much control we would have at Advertiser because ultimately Google is one of the wall gardens. Like whatever happens between the walls, stay between the walls, they control everything. I do think that when you're pulling it out of this article and you define what unified pricing model is supposed to do, again, bring, bringing that equilibrium between supply and demand side, being able to communicate within the two sides in a unified way, I do think that unified pricing model is something we want to start talking about a little bit more between other technologies. But I don't know if Google is going to really play fair here. We'll continue monitoring this. The Traders Unified pricing model was basically, it was not even a pricing model. It was a solution, like a, a ID tag solution where wh- whatever technology they were partnering with, I think AppNexus was one of them, they would they would just segment their data the same way as the Traders would. And so the communicating between the two platform and being able to determine if data XYZ equals data one, two, three over there just being more efficient and again helping with the pricing instead of overbidding now we know exactly how which data is what therefore it's this price here because it was this price there i do like the idea of that solution i just am very uh, very eager or antsy about how it was going to be implemented with everything else happening in in the industry i wonder how much of that is going to affect our cpms and because head, when header bidding hit i remember some of our cpms going a little bit higher we're, we're going to keep monitoring this one i but that's i think across the board what happens once there's a, a change and a shift right there mm-hmm. will be a, a some type of back-end change google will have to do to clean it up the, the pricing model so that it's efficient mm-hmm. for the big guys and also for the small guys because the big guys mm-hmm. can afford to pay higher cpms they've got bigger budgets mm-hmm. they can laugh longer the smaller display players they don't they have to be lean and nimble and be able to get in there do what they need to do get the message to the right customers and get the right actions in order to survive so and google needs those small players too as well as the big guys there'll be some back-end stuff that they have to tweak i think it's on the the long term it's probably better because once you get rid of all the specific pricing models and the one else with this um, vendor and that vendor and these different technologies and not always so fair fitting practices it's probably better across the board for everybody where i have the same footing as an apple or any other type of company and there's no quote-unquote sweetheart deal or theoretically should be a quote-unquote sweetheart deal just because i have a specific name or something yeah and 
it's so interesting to talk about how those data are segmenting. I mean, I remember looking at some of the DMPs I've used, um, data management platforms, and some of those segments are named very interestingly, like in market for a new vehicle, highly likely, in market for vehicle, medium or likely and less likely. And so I'm looking at all four segments like, okay, so they're all likely, it's just a different a different level of consideration, but how is that level of consideration being um, being measured? At that time, I just thought it was, oh, well, maybe they're higher in the, the, the sales funnel or lower in the sales funnel. But now I know that that was not the case. It's just how this data is being matched back. And because it's matching to a certain level, then they're assuming that there's some level of consideration versus all of those uh, data segments communicating and matching to the same, then there's it's a likely or higher uh, consideration for that segment. So it's very interesting coming to, to to look at the technology and how it operates in the back end and really how to utilize it in your day-to-day. Exactly. So now we're moving on to the segment where we like to shine our diversity light on the agency a brand or creative or anything related that has done right or wrong. So do you have anything in mind to share with us today? Um, right or wrong? That's a wide open <laughs> question. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that could uh, get some brands definitely into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you have not done diversity right or if you've been in the media or in the news because one of your commercial has had the opposite effect then that's that's an example of diversity done wrong i guess from my perspective because i just see the world a little differently is Mm -hmm. with diversity are companies doing it because they have to check off a box Mm -hmm. or they're doing it because a particular person actor player whoever it is in that specific need is the best person for that particular role that they are looking for and that just happen to be of a particular bucket persuasion background whatever you call it mm-hmm. i'm more of a fan of the latter than the former i don't <laughs> agree with companies that choose someone or something or some position just because of it's convenient socially or whatever and instead they're trying to make a message i would prefer that companies go with all right let's go for the best person for this particular role or whatever it is and it works got it um yeah that brings a good point i mean we this is a total different topic <laughs> we can definitely go into a little bit deeper in that i mean our first two episodes with sanar uh where we're about diversity and it's not a conversation that we will not continue having and that's why I have the segments because I'm always interested in seeing how a marketer even understand that diversity how if something really stood out that was like ooh that did do no that wasn't good or yes that was it because it highlighted or checked these many boxes as you mentioned so pretty interesting uh, feedback before we part ways do you mind sharing three fun facts about yourself in less than 20 seconds Less than 20 seconds. That's tough. Um, <laughs> wow, I wish I'd learned beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Um, the most interesting client that I've worked with was a fishmonger in Grand Central Station. Wow. The largest client I've worked with was Apple Computer. And nice. the 
first client that I was actually going to put onto Google AdWords was the largest uh, roofing company in Atlanta, Dr. Roof, and this was back in 2004. And I presented it to the CEO saying, hey, look, I can get you into Google and it's going to cost you only about 10 cents per click. Wow. (laughs) You're throwing it way back on us right now. (laughs) <laughs> All right. And um, any parting advice for any freshman ninjas getting into the industry? Quick to do's and don'ts, maybe a tip that you learn along the way. I think the first thing I learned from people um, is be the first one in the office, last one to leave. Don't say no to anything. Try to take on as many projects and things as you can and try to be of service and just listen and learn from whoever you can and always you know, be nice to the uh, the little people, like the receptionists and the janitors and everybody else, because you were a little person one day, and even one day you will become a big person, but you have to remember the little people. That's a really interesting feedback, because I think you're the second or third person on this podcast that have said something in the, along the lines of, hey, remember to be nice and smile. <laughs> um, which is very important. You know, kindness is free. Kindness is essential. So please be kind. And um, love the feedback about taking as many projects as you want, as long as your sanity and your inner peace is protected. Right. But also, that's the best way to learn, like staying a little longer, especially if you're entering in this industry. So thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us today. We're so excited about this. I hope to hear from you very soon and hope to have you back on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Again, you'll find everything we've discussed today, including Matthew's information, show notes, and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. Please take a few minutes to leave us a review wherever you're streaming this podcast and share with anyone that you know can benefit from it. In conclusion, fam, we are all humans working in this fast advancing industry. So as a reminder, we're not saving lives, y'all. At the end of the day, our mission on this podcast is to share knowledge, highlights diversity, and educate ourselves as we build this community of programmatic ninjas or family, as we would say in my African culture. Stay confident. <laughs>